Religion has profoundly influenced the sweeping American narrative, perhaps more than any other force in our history, from the time before European colonization to the present. The startup National Museum of American Religion is working to build a museum in the nation's capital that will share the story of what religion has done to America and what America has done to religion, inviting all to explore the role of religion in shaping the social, political, economic, and cultural lives of Americans and thus America itself. Join our host, Chris Stevenson, for season two of our podcast series, Religion in the American Experience, as we follow scholars deep into America's religious history and learn how it can inform and animate us as citizens grappling with complex questions of governance and American purpose in the 21st century. Episodes will be released every Monday on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Register for notifications on our website, www.storyofamericanreligion.org, under the sign-up tab. Food sustains physical life and as such is of critical importance to us. Some in the country have an abundance, hunger gnaws at others, in which group we find ourselves determines much of our current existence. What we eat also touches on other aspects of our lives besides need. Celebrations, emotional comfort, health, family traditions, religious traditions, and connections are breaking bread with others. For the purposes of this podcast series, we are interested in uncovering and understanding the connections between religion and food in the United States. What are they, what do they mean, and how significant are they? To do a deep dive into just one slice of this fascinating and meaningful subject, we have as our guest Kate Holbrook, currently managing historian in the Church History Department of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Dr. Holbrook received her master's degree at Harvard Divinity School and Ph.D. in Religion and Society from Boston University in 2014. She is the author of many articles and chapters and co-editor of several books, including At the Pulpit, 150 Years of Discourses by Latter-day Saint Women, Women in Mormonism, Historical and Contemporary Perspectives, and The First 50 Years of Relief Society. For our discussion today, we are looking at her chapter she wrote in the book, Religion, Food, and Eating in North America, edited by Benjamin Zeller, Marie Dallum, Reed Nelson, and Nora Rubel. Today's episode will help us better understand what religion has done to America and what America has done to religion, and we trust that as a result, listeners will see how indispensable the idea of religious freedom as a governing principle is to the United States and its ability to fulfill its purposes in the world. We encourage our listeners to visit storyofamericanreligion.org and register for future podcast notifications under the sign-up tab. Kate, thank you so much for being with us today. Oh, it's a pleasure. Thanks for the invitation. I'd like to ask a few introductory questions, which I think will be helpful to provide a framework for what our listeners will will hear today. First, uh, can you tell us why you have this interest in the intersection of food and religion in the United States? Most of my writing now has to do in some way with the study of women in religion. And food represents a substantial contribution that women make to strengthening religious communities, to nurturing the practice of religion at home, and even to the practice of religious ritual. Today, this can mean Friday night dinners in Judaism, religious holiday meals in many traditions, communal meals at church, funeral meals, refreshments that attract young people to religious activities, caring for indisposed community members, and more. 
historically, women baked the bread that was used for the Lord's Supper or the sacrament. So drawing attention to food and religion is one way to draw attention to the ways that women contribute to flourishing religious life that haven't received much attention. I care a lot about invisible work. It isn't a coincidence that 50 years ago in the 1970s, the women's movement in this country began impacting the academy. And that's also the decade that historians began writing about food. Hmm. Um, I'm also interested in the intersection of religion and food because I find the religious thinking and experiences of everyday people to be compelling and meaningful. Uh, what seems like a simple decision about what to eat or what to cook actually represents a prioritizing of values that are often influenced by religion among many other factors. In many ways, I think home is a more telling context for the meaning of religious life than even a mosque or a temple or a church. Wow. Okay. Did this come to you when you were in college or is this predate that? Or did it come to you after you graduated and started working full time? Uh, later, actually in graduate school. Um, so I graduated from college and then I'd worked for a couple of years at a university. And then while getting my master's degree in studying world religion, um, that's, that's when okay. th these episodes of what women were doing in a kitchen or what they were doing with food in a religious building really became meaningful to me. Okay. Well, that's a fascinating uh, genesis there. Thank you. Could you share with us what religion's influence on the nation's food tells us first about food and second about religion? Um, to, to answer the first part of that question, I think I'd have to make so many generalizations that whatever I'd say would be mostly false. <laughs> Fair uh, enough. But, but what I can say is that my, my study of religion and food has shown that in religious groups that are looked down on, members of those groups often really want to be thought well of by the people outside of the groups. And, and food is commonly a, a site where they negotiate their desire for acceptance. So let's see, um, an example would be my colleague, Nora Rubel has shown in her study of the settlement cookbook, which was a cookbook often given to Jewish women, especially if they were just immigrating to the United States, um, that there were recipes in the cookbook for seafood, pork, and other items that were considered haram which means prohibited. Um, so interesting that this very popular cookbook that was seen as a way to help people adjust to the United States included forbidden, prohibited uh, foodstuffs. Or okay. um, members of the Nation of Islam were not supposed to eat traditional Southern foods, things like collard greens, chitlins, black-eyed peas, cornbread, because their leader wanted them to distance themselves from negative stereotypes about black people. And those um, part of the stereotype was that, that black people ate those foods. Um, right, okay. But, but then they, they made their own versions of those foods just without the prohibited substances. So right. instead of 
sweet potato pie. They made bean pie, but they were quite similar in flavor and appearance. And, and I want to give you one more example. Please. My head. Yes. And, and, and that's that uh, Latter-day Saints had non-alcoholic versions of items that traditionally contain alcohol. Um, so again, they're, they're wrestling with what can make them look respectable um, to other people. At the same time, they're trying to figure out how to honor their own um, food ways. So, so they'd have my favorite example is of rhubarb iced cocktail, which is called a cocktail, even though it doesn't have any alcohol and it's made from rhubarb, which flourishes in the climate in Utah. Um, but it was called a cocktail because cocktails are sophisticated. Wow. And we're, we're going to get into some of these stories in, in greater depth. So I, uh, so thank you for mentioning them here at the outset to, to give us a, a framework here. You mentioned a term called food way. Explain to our listeners what that is, because it'll come up, I think, again and again in our interview. Uh, yeah. Um, so we have this academic jargon, jargon and, and a lot of the words are really um, counterintuitive or uh, they include parts of other languages or there's kind of hard to keep track of. And foodway is actually a pretty good one because it is what it sounds like. It's the way to obtain food. <laughs> so uh, it deals with uh, how, to, how people grow food or how they obtain food, how they prepare food, how they eat food. And that's not just... Um, about recipes, but also, you know, do they sit on the floor? Do they sit at a table? Okay. What implements do they eat with? All of those things are referred to as food ways. Okay, good. Now, before we, we get into the, the, the chapter, last intro question, uh, the title of your chapter um, is Good to Eat, Culinary Priorities in the Nation of Islam and the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Um, what moved you to write about those two groups and food? Uh, initially, I was looking for a dissertation topic. And initially, I wanted to write about people who grew food for religious reasons. And I had five. And my committee said, you can't write a dissertation about five. You'll never finish it. And it won't hold together. Um, so then I had to narrow it down to two. And the reason I chose to stick with Latter-day Saints in the Nation of Islam is because the groups are so on the surface, different from each other. Uh, one in the middle of the 20th century was primarily white and, and lived in a more rural environment, lived in the Western United States. And the other was primarily African-American uh, and lived in cities, uh, Detroit, Atlanta, Chicago. Um, so the the fact that they look so different that way, but then they have these um, religious impulses in common, things like storing food, things like kind of dressing up your missionaries, um, but really intrigued me. So I wanted to get to the bottom of that and figure out what was behind those similarities. Okay. Okay, so first group that you deal with and that we'll talk about is the Nation of Islam. Uh, but before I get to that, I guess you label both uh, as American outsiders, minority American religions with differences and commonalities, which you just uh, discussed. Um, can you give us a brief description 
uh, of each of these groups, uh, their dietary rules, and focusing on those which are important in your study. So a real brief description of these two minority religions. Yeah, well, so uh, Nation of Islam started around 1930 in Detroit. Uh, a man was uh, selling things and also teaching people um, the tenets of this new religion. And then he, he had a lot of bad luck, was distrusted by the FBI. And so um, his successor, Elijah Muhammad, is the one who really, um, really grew the religion and solidified the basic tenets. Um, and, and as I alluded to earlier, a, a lot of their food practices were about not, not eating the things that were associated with slave life. So no pork, and that's true of regular Islam as well, um, but no fried chicken, uh, no collard greens, no, all those things that you think of as Southern foods, um, they stayed away from. And then uh, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints started under a related but slightly different name um, hundred years earlier, I guess maybe you should, could date it to 1835. Um, and it was in upstate New York. And that founder was Joseph Smith, um, a young man. And uh, he, only a couple of years after the founding of the tradition, or actually I should have said 1830, but only a couple of years um, into the founding of the tradition, he recorded a revelation from God that uh, he called the word of wisdom. And that had positive things to it saying, eat things in season, eat lots of grains and fruits and vegetables, only eat meat in times of winter. And then it also had prohibitions. Don't drink alcohol, don't drink hot drinks. Um, and then, oh, and don't use tobacco. And then by the time a hundred years later, when the leader of the church said, we're really going to take this seriously now, um, you, you all need to obey it. They, um, they didn't focus as much on the positive rules, but they um, defined the negative ones for everybody since the language wasn't particularly clear in the revelation. And they said, what it means to obey this is it means you don't drink alcohol you don't partake, you don't take into your system tobacco in any way. Um, what am I missing? <laughs> Alcohol, tobacco. Anyway, and then as, as time has gone on, say as, as recreational drugs have come along, those have been adopted in as also, um, you can't obey the word of wisdom and partake of, you know, smoke pot or whatever. Right. Okay. All right. Uh, let's see. You write this, Kate, quote, even when groups purport to reject American culture or when popular culture rejects them, religious groups born in America are deeply influenced by American sensibilities, close quote. What were these American sensibilities you found impacted both groups' approach to food and how did they compare to the religious priorities? Uh. Well, the, the first one that comes to mind is self-sufficiency. Um, both groups encouraged farming and gardening. And of course, if you're, if you're in an urban environment, 
that looks different and it's much more difficult to achieve. So for the nation they bought, and, and the nation is short for the Nation of Islam, they bought land in uh, Georgia and had one of their members be in charge of farming that, uh, ho hoping eventually to figure out how to raise enough food for the whole community should there be an emergency. And they also stored food for times of emergency. And um, the, the, the thing they sort of did most often is they would get clean, new, large garbage cans, like the kind that you'd take out to the, to the corner on garbage day. And they would fill them with beans because beans have a long shelf life and they provide really good nutritional value. Um, so so a, a Nation of Islam apartment um, might have one or two of these cans full of beans in it. Um, and then Latter-day Saints were encouraged to farm. And then when people finally gave up on many people farming, because throughout the country, people were moving um, from rural to urban environments, then they started to focus on food storage. And the nations had their beans and Latter-day Saints had their wheat. They'd have large containers of wheat that they would store again, because it had a long shelf life um, and was something that was nutritionally rich that they could survive, do a lot of things with and, and survive off of for a long time. Um, but just to name briefly a few others, respectability, um, they, they wanted to be presentable. Nation of Islam members um, dressed very well, you know, ironed their shirts. They had a focus on physical fitness. They used to weigh the men um, make, as part of their meeting. At the beginning of the meeting, they'd make them stand on a scale and they had to pay a tax if they'd gained weight. Um, uh, for for Latter-day Saints, they focused on things like music lessons and dance lessons and being culturally aware. Um, a, a lot of, this is still part of the community. A lot of Latter-day Saints will show up on like, Dancing with the Stars or The Voice or those kinds of shows and it, it's, the reason is, is because this develop your cultural talents is still a value, at least in the United States, um, for a lot of members of the community. And then um, another example is the first pamphlet for young people uh, came out in 1965. It was called For the Strength of Youth. And it, think about the middle 60s, you know, um, people were experimenting with letting their hair grow and growing beards and um, not bathing as often and um, having loose clothing. And for the, this For the Strength of Youth pamphlet talked a lot about keeping your hair short and men weren't to wear beads and or, um, beards and people were to bathe regularly. And it advised women not to leave the house if they had curlers in their hair and, um, you know, always to look presentable. Um, so, so those are, those are, impress the broader community kind of things, even when the broader community was changing that um, were alive in both traditions. And, and they, they both prioritized frugality too and prosperity and frugality as a means to become prosperous and as a means to save enough money that you can help other people in your tradition. Right. So you write this, um, that, that's, that's, uh, Interesting. I, I think what you're emphasizing is that these, both of these minority religions, um, 
looked out and and grabbed on to certain characteristics that both satisfied their religious tenets but also made them more acceptable to mainstream culture and and this is this includes food stuff which yeah. we'll we'll get to yeah. more yeah Absolutely. um so you write this, quote, Muhammad's significant emphasis on health, and I'll add here beauty, he emphasized both, um, is important because the attainment of good physical health and beauty was a priority, was a priority of mainstream American culture, close quote. So you, you mentioned this a little bit. Is there anything else you want to add to the Nation of Islam's, well, I guess their um, their use of, well, they're they're layering on top of their food ways that idea. Well, maybe just mention another um, example, and and just because people aren't reading the whole chapter, so they don't have the context, I want to make sure they realize that the Muhammad in that quotation was not the Prophet Muhammad; it was Elijah Muhammad. Well, Thank you. who's also considered a prophet, but, but not the, <laughs> but not the old one. Right, yeah. Right. Um, I, I, there's this wonderful, I'm blanking on the name of it, but this wonderful book, a little, I think it's called Little X, written by Sonzi Ray Tate, where she talks about her experience being a child um, in the nation and the, the way her grandma mentored her in that faith. And she remembered her grandma, if they were riding the bus and they'd see a woman come out of her house with curlers in her hair, or a house dress on or something, her, her grandma would... Um, think badly of that and, and, and instruct her not to do that because that that's, uh, you know, it's not putting your best foot forward. And so she learned to differentiate, Sunzi Ray uh, learned to differentiate herself from other members of the, the black community was, was what they were thinking about in this particular context is um, not doing any crazy 1960s things like having a, and I, mean, I don't think this is crazy. They, they were thinking it was crazy. Um, a really large Afro or um, looking in any way slovenly, uh, they, they wanted to be presentable, respectable, um, sort of traditional and conservative um, in that way. Right. You write of the, the foods you mentioned earlier the foods that they tried that they would uh, avoid um tell us a little bit more about that and why they did it and what what the ramifications were in like a, a, the home of a nation of islam member um the ramifications are i mean in a way it was a little it accomplished something important in the fact that they started to define themselves in a new way, which means they were defining themselves as having made this choice to be a part of this newer tradition. Um, and that's always uh, a part of boundary maintenance that can make a real difference uh, for religious communities. But as I studied it, I also saw some pain there, or, or at least I, attributed them to experience pain I did on their their behalf that these dishes that um, your your family had eaten for a few generations at least um, th things that your grandma had made for your mother and then your mother had made for you 
you could no longer make and eat. And, and so they, they had these really interesting ways around that. Um, I, I mentioned bean pie instead of sweet potato pie and the bean pie recipe that um, became particularly famous. It sort of set the standard was developed by the, oh, I hate that I can't remember her name, um, the cook for Muhammad Ali. Muhammad Ali was a member of the nation. And so she would make meals that would help him be healthy and also help him um, eat the way he was supposed to as a member of the community. Um, and then, um, and it had a custardy texture and, and, and it's reminiscent of sweet potato pie. Um, or at the restaurant, Sonzi Ray Tate remembers uh, carrot fluff being one of the things she particularly liked. And it, this was a lot like a sweet potato casserole. And so they just found their way to not use the sweet potatoes that were forbidden, but to create something that looked like it and still fulfilled the emotional needs um, and desires that you could no longer get from sweet potato souffle or sweet potato casserole, but but you could get with carrots and carrots were possible to eat, even sure. the same color. Sure. So, worked out. so um, in your analysis of Nation of Islam recipes, uh, so you analyzed a bunch of recipes. You write that, quote, the most revealing aspect of these recipes is how Nation of Islam menus incorporated what came to be known in the 1960s as soul food, close quote. What did this reveal that is so important? Um, I, I, maybe I've covered this a little bit. What I was trying to convey was how when people love a particular food experience, especially especially when it's become important to them through family, through family history, through generations, they'll find ways to maintain it even when the rules of conversion might at first glance threaten to, uh, or, or at first glance threaten it. So this is why okay. we had, you know, the carrot fluff and the sweet potato casserole. Okay, now that makes sense. And you, you told us, I wanted to ask a question about the bean pie, which is fairly famous in the Nation of Islam uh, culture, but also the, perhaps the wider American religious culture. I wasn't super familiar with it, although it rang a bell. Uh, you did tell us about this. Is there anything else you want to mention about bean pie? It came up several times in the book. It's come up a couple of times already here. Um, what is so emblematic about it? Well, one thing is when um, male members of the nation would stand on street corners and hand out pamphlets. They would also sell bean pie. And often um, it was a small version of a pie. So it was something that you could eat um, as an individual, not, not needing to serve it to a number of people. Or if you say you were a member of the nation and you hadn't been able to bring lunch to work, you could run out to the corner and buy a bean pie and um, take it back and eat that and, and be obeying the... Well, actually, I was about to say obeying the the rules, but but for the people who really took the food waste seriously, one thing that surprises a lot of people is members of the nation only ate one meal a day. Um, so so the lunch example is a false one. They 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 sold the pie. You can buy the pie even if you're not a member of the nation, but they they more likely would have bought the pie to eat 
later if they were doing it in the middle of the day because uh, you only ate one meal a day and you could choose when you wanted to eat that meal. Elijah Muhammad thought that between 4 and 6 p.m. were the optimal hours, but and, and I think it's convenient to do it later. I think most people would have a later in the day um, mm. meal, um, but that was the okay. That was the rule. Okay, men selling bean pies on the corner. Yeah, that's a that's a great picture to have in your head. Um, yeah. We are talking with Kate Holbrook, managing historian in the Church History Department of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter Day Saints, and author of a chapter about culinary priorities in the Nation of Islam and the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. In the book, Religion, Food, and Eating in North America, Dr. Holbrook received her master's degree at Harvard Divinity School and her PhD in Religion and Society from Boston University in 2014. Kate, uh, you mentioned this uh, early on, but just to, to remind our listeners, give us a brief um, description of the culinary habits of members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints uh, as we get into that second part of your chapter, uh, that would be helpful, I think. Uh, yeah. So, so the rules that today most people take very seriously and and follow are no alcohol, no tobacco, no drugs, um, no coffee, no tea. Um, it took about a hundred years uh, from the time this word of wisdom was was first talked about for people to consistently um, take, take it more seriously. Um, there are other aspects to the word of wisdom. And a lot of people, I, it, it comes in waves according to what's going on in the broader society too. Um, in the 60s, a lot of people took it really seriously. They said, this promises health for us. So it, we should be vegetarian or at least only meat eat meat every once in a while and only in winter. Um, but but those other things, eat foods when they're in season, eat lots of fruits and vegetables, those are seen as wise but not required of an Orthodox member. Okay. You write that the welfare program of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints adopted in 1936, quote, has shaped Mormon cuisine even more than the word of wisdom which is a canonized part of scripture, close quote. Would you tell us this story, including what the welfare program is and including the relevance of two of America's most intrinsic and related values, which you mentioned earlier as well? Yeah, well, the welfare program, it started in 1936, um, but even before that, uh, the Latter-day Saints were trying to figure out how to feed each other, especially, you know, if people didn't have a lot of money and they traveled all the way from England in the 19th century, by the time they arrived, they really had nothing left. So there, there was a big need to take care of each other. And there, it was also seen as a spiritual mandate that you take care of people in need. Um, so they tried different things and, and met these needs as they could in different ways over the years. But in 1936, in the thick of the depression, um, an official church welfare program was started. And this encouraged people to be frugal uh, so that they could have enough to share and also so they could be self-sufficient so they could take care of their own needs. And that that uh, mandate to share and to take care of other people, um, it, it means that popular recipes have not included expensive ingredients. Um, it means that frugality is, is an important value 
uh, popular things have been easy to transport, popular recipes. Um, so you could take them to a potluck dinner at the church, or um, you could drop them by the house of someone who had a new baby or who had a family member who was ill. Uh, so they tended, the popular recipes were not pretentious. They were not expensive. They were not uh, the sort of fancy things, desserts that are, um, you know, where there's sort of a tower <laughs> built like this popular food in the 80s and restaurants in the 80s. Uh, they were they were things that were um, simpler, that would appeal to a broad range of palates and that were easy to transport. Um, most of all, most of all, uh, the welfare program encouraged food storage, um, which meant that there were more shelf-stable items in people's pantries. And because people were frugal, they had to eat the items in their pantries. They couldn't just say, oh, we have our food storage and now we've run out of it or it's expired and we'll throw it out and buy some more. They had to rotate it into their daily food storage. So... Um, as a result, in recipes, you get items made with powdered milk that if somebody else was making, they would probably put fresh milk in. Um, so Latter-day Saint would have a recipe for that included powdered milk instead or uh, canned milk, some sort of shelf-stable form of milk. Um, and then I mentioned before, more than anything, uh, they stored whole wheat. And if, if people went in the 70s and 80s, um, some people just didn't have the energy to have a wide variety of food products in their food storage, but they would still store wheat. So you see whole wheat flour showing up. You see whole wheat cookbooks. You see whole wheat flour showing up in zucchini bread or banana bread or carrot cake, pancakes, waffles. Um, it was easy to buy, easy to store. Uh, a, a lot of Latter-day Saints also aspired to eat in ways that uh, they thought of as healthy. And of course, the definition of what is healthy and what isn't in some ways has changed over the years. Um, back in the 80s, before everyone had celiac disease, what whole grains were particularly considered to be healthy. Um, uh, the staff of life, but um, some people had trouble figuring out how to rotate wheat into their regular cooking. Maybe they right. didn't like to cook and didn't want to pull out the wheat grinder every time they wanted to bake, or maybe they didn't like the flavor of whole wheat flour. Um, I have an, a neighbor who told me she, I get a lot of good stories when people know what I study. And she told me that she stored and vacuum sealed six really large containers of whole wheat, but then she never ended up using them while raising her six children. And when the youngest child turned 18 and left home, uh, she decided she didn't need this stuff in her house anymore. And she got somebody to help her move it out onto the street as an, you know, one step towards disposing of them. And uh, while they were out there, another neighbor who was a full-time homemaker saw those. She was a church member, so she thought that's probably full of wheat. And she was having a hard time feeding her family because her husband was in a long period of unemployment. And so she called the woman who owned the wheat and she said, is that wheat out there? And the woman said, yes. And she said, 
do you think we could have it? And she said, yes, absolutely. Um, so they came and it took them a couple of trips <laughs> to, to move all this wheat to their house. And when they opened it, they found it was still in good condition. Um, so they took every barrel and I, I, they were thrilled and they called the original owner of the wheat and she was thrilled to hear that it was still in good condition. And I think talking to her, I think it provided for her a kind of redemption because even though she hadn't incorporated the wheat into her family's regular diet, it had gone to a very good use. It had helped these people who were in, in need make probably a, a better use um, than right. if she had used it herself. That, that's a great story. Um, the, the next question I have relates to back to something you just said in your explanation of, of the welfare program versus the word of wisdom. Um, in, the, in your chapter, you mentioned a particular Mormon cookbook written by a, a Mormon lady who is fairly well-known uh, in circles out in Utah who, who worked for newspaper out there and wrote a column, I think, on food yeah. and Mormon culture. And in, in your chapter, you, you talk about how this particular author addressed inconsistencies between dietary doctrine and community recipes. Can you give us a little taste of that? I mean, you, you, you gave us some background on that, but get, what, how did this lady talk about that? It just came up in a few places. Um, and, and the one that I most remember is she has a chapter on egg dishes and she starts off, she has a little uh, page at the beginning of each chapter. And the page on the beginning of this chapter explains how Latter-day Saints are not to, supposed to eat very much meat. And even though, you know, the meat chapter has a lot of recipes in it because Latter-day Saints did eat a lot of meat. Um, but she says, but these egg recipes are a good way, inexpensive to feed your family and, and give them uh, the protein they need uh, on those days when you're cooking without meat. Hmm. Interesting. Interesting that she felt like she had to address that. Yeah, yeah. She because she this this woman was, you know, she descended from founding church leaders. She sang with the Mormon Tabernacle Choir. She'd been on the board that was the head of the organization for young women uh, for a long time, and the the newspaper for which she wrote her column. Um, was a church-owned newspaper. So she was really devout. And uh, I think it bothered her a little bit when recipes and habits didn't completely match up with what the Word of Wisdom said. So right. she she was also a loving woman. So she tried to find loving, gentle ways to, to steer people, to mirror what people liked, but also steer them a little bit more toward, sure. the, toward the Word of Wisdom. Sure. Kate, towards the end of your chapter, you explain that, quote, in some respects, the word of wisdom was marginalized to better attain American values like economy, independence, and self-sufficiency, close quote. What is the significance of this finding? Um, well, so an example is in the late, so Latter-day Saints came to Utah in 1847 and they were hungry. They'd been hungry. They'd been kicked out of a few places and they would just start getting their crops growing and just start getting things working. And then they'd have to leave again. And Brigham Young was the leader of the church at this point, And he didn't want them to be hungry anymore. So 
he was he was feeling um, he was aware of all the intense suffering and hunger that had gone on. And so he encouraged people to store food. And he also wanted the Latter-day Saints in Utah to be self-sufficient uh, economically. And so he encouraged them to farm silkworms and make their own silk, he, just all of these different modes for being self-sufficient. And this included, uh, there were vineyards for making their own wine. It included sugar beets for providing their own source of um, sweetness for baked goods. Um, so even if something was counter to the word of wisdom, and he preached often about the word of wisdom, wanting people to pay attention to it, he still thought the lesser evil was uh, having them grow their, you know, grow their own, make their own coffee instead of getting it from other people so that money would be going out of the community. Okay. All right. Thank you for, for that. Uh, here, as we conclude, I have two last questions. Um, you share in your book, at the end of your chapter, quote, watching nation Muslims and Mormons cook and eat provides important new insights into the ways participants in American society negotiate the paradoxes of fitting in and intentionally failing to fit in. A potent reminder of the importance the perception and practice of otherness plays in the construction of American society, close quote. We need you to unpack that a little bit for our listeners. Yeah, maybe the maybe the easiest part to kind of to kind of use as a way in here is uh, fitting in and intentionally failing to fit in. Um, there's, I, I think of the in American how many movies do we have throughout the history of the film industry in which there's this loner and he bucks the system and he goes against what the majority are doing. And he, he's the hero. He saves the day in some way. Um, and yet, everybody wants to be the loner. So if everybody's the loner, he's no longer the loner. <laughs> but so, so I just see that at work in some American society all, all the time. We want to be different. We want to be our own people. We want to be unusual and unique but the ways that we want to be unusual and unique, and even the fact that we want to be unusual and unique, is itself means we're not unusual uh, or unique. You can you can see that sort of tangle, that sort of paradox. People working on it in social media a lot, or else they don't work on it and they're just sort of ignorant of it. Um, so, so in the case of Latter-day Saints um, and the Nation of Islam, they, they're also doing both things at the same time. They are trying to be, even, in some ways, even more American than the Americans uh, in the ways we've talked about. Look good, be clean, um, be, be slender, be self-sufficient, be good, good bootstrappers and, and process, or prosperous. Those things are all about fitting in. Um, but on the other hand, both groups also worried that the outside society that 
in this case, American society was evil, was a threat, and they needed to step away from it, uh, not let it infect them. Um, so, so in the nation during the 50s, when Malcolm X, um, perhaps the most, the most famous of their preachers became very popular, he and his colleagues would speak out boldly against white devils and by white devils they meant white people um, and during about that same time members of the church of jesus christ of latter-day saints were concerned about the changes in sexual behavior that had developed during world war ii and then continued into the 50s uh, uh, people were a lot freer about extramarital sex including um, adultery uh, that came out of the war and they, they were worried about that. The Kinsey report on sexuality came out in the fifties. So they weren't rejecting everything about American culture and they still wanted to be accepted by Americans. Um, but even though there were things they admired or aspired to in American culture, uh, there were also things they found dangerous and they really needed to be apart from. And food habits is one of the major ways uh, that they were set apart. You know, if you if you tell somebody you can't have lunch with them because you only eat once a day, or if you somebody offers you a drink and you can't accept it, then um, that sets you apart. Right. So, so food is is quite um, a, a quite a utensil, um, or quite a <laughs> yeah. for, for for people and and religious groups to do this, to, to, to make this negotiation process, right? It, it finds its way into food very easily. That's what yeah. you're saying, right? Yeah. And, yep. and since people are intimate with their food, we make it, we buy it, then it becomes, maybe that's one of the reasons it becomes such a useful thing to express the, these negotiations, perhaps. Is that what you're saying? Yes, yep, exactly. As we conclude, Kate, uh, do you want to share any lessons besides the ones you've shared with us? But take this time at the end. Do you want to share any lessons or takeaways from the from the chapter, either in terms of important historical transformations that you you chart, or in terms of helping us better understand our present moment? And I guess I should say or emphasize our present um, religious moment in time. I guess in, in the United States, what are some things you might share? Uh, as we as we conclude, that might be important to our listeners. Well, one of the reasons that I I find this topic so fascinating is because when when people decide what to eat, meaning what to grow or shop for, how to prepare it, uh, who's going to eat it, um, and when, they are they are going through all of the religious priorities in their mind as well as their practical circumstances to make those decisions. Um, so it's a, it's a way to look at the everyday th theologizing, you know, the theological work that, that people do um, and, and, and what that set and, and what they end up deciding, what they end up buying and, and making and serving and um, sharing that says a lot about uh, what priorities they're making top priorities because they're always competing priorities in life. And 
in religion. Uh, so, so looking at food, your own food habits and the food habits of, of a religious tradition is a way to see, well, I'm making on the ground decisions here. And what do they say about the way I'm prioritizing my values? Um, and and you, you, we're talk, we've been talking this whole interview about religion, but people tend to have religious fervor about food, even when they don't identify with a particular tradition. One example, oh gosh, it was almost 20 years ago, uh, PBS had a special about Alice Waters, um, who, who's one of the people who really contributed to the um, local food, organic food, eat delicious food um, movement that took off in our country. And um, in this documentary, they said to a woman, um, they were at, talking to her at a farmer's market, and she said, you know, going to Alice's restaurant for me is like going to church. And another person said, for me, going to the farmer's market is like going to church. This is my church. And it's it's fun to unpack that because uh, I, I think one of the things they mean is my values are represented in the food options here, the way where the food comes from, the way it's grown, uh, the way thinking about those things will have a positive impact on society. So th this is very much about religion, but it's also about values um, outside of the realm of organized religion. Right. Well, that's a great final, final word. We have been talking with Kate Holbrook, Managing Historian in the Church History Department of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and author of a chapter about culinary priorities in the Nation of Islam and the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints in the book Religion, Food, and Eating in North America. Here at the conclusion of this podcast episode, we trust that listeners understand a little bit more about what religion has done to America and what America has done to religion and have a deeper appreciation of religious freedom as a governing principle in the United States, seeing to its protection as an indispensable part of the fragile American experiment in self-government. Don't forget to visit storyofamericanreligion.org and register for future podcast notifications under the sign-up tab. Kate, thank you for being with us today and doing the hard work of researching this fascinating area which helped us all understand America a bit better. It's been very enlightening, and I hope you've enjoyed the time with us as well. I have very much, and, and thanks, Chris. I, I want to thank you for this podcast series. It's about such an important topic and will help more of, of us to understand these dynamics about religion and America. Thanks, Kate. The podcast series, Religion in the American Experience, is a project of the National Museum of American Religion, Episodes are released each Monday on Apple Podcast and Spotify. Register for notifications on our website, www.storyofamericanreligion.org, under the sign-up tab.